are listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 43, Right Brain, Left Brain. We've all heard of right-brained and left-brained people, but I'm enough of a left-brained person to be skeptical that there's even a difference. So let's talk about right-brained and left-brained. Kim, what does it mean to be right-brained or left-brained? Well, perhaps we should start by, as always, discussing my favorite thing, which is the gross anatomy of the brain. And I recognize it is hard to do this without a diagram, but I'll do my best. And I think, uh, you know, for those of you that have seen images of, of brains, um, you, you may sort of be able to visualize what I'm saying here, but maybe even just visualize like a walnut, you know, like when you get a walnut from the grocery store, not the crushed ones, but the, the walnut halves. If you can see that in your mind's eye, you may be able to, to recognize that it appears to have two halves with a long stripe down the middle that connects the two halves. And this uh, anatomical lateralization, so lateralize is a fancy way of saying side, is very similar in the brain. So we don't have one giant mass of tissue. We actually have two sides and what they're known more formally as are cerebral brain hemispheres. Hemi means half and sphere means globe. That's wild. So uh, like a walnut, are they connected in some way? Yep. The two sides of the brain have several bands of connections, kind of like highways, that carry information from one side to the other. Uh, and we have several of them, but the main one is something called the corpus callosum. Now, have you heard of the terms gray matter and white matter? Yes, I have. My understanding is gray matter is the cell bodies, and the white matter is, it makes up the axons, which are the parts of the cell that carry information to other cells. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So the cerebral hemispheres are made up mostly mostly of gray matter, right? They, they do have some white matter um, in between them, but the corpus callosum is basically, it's, it's white matter. So it's these large tracks or what are called, uh, the tracks is the formal word for bundles of axons that send messages from one side of the brain to the other. And the reason it, uh, they're colored white, so why it's called white matter is because the axons are wrapped with another kind of cell called a glial cell. And this forms like a fatty layer called the myelin sheath. Um, uh, and, and the whole purpose of the myelin sheath is it, it helps, well, one of the purposes, I should say, is it helps speed up uh, electrical signaling. So s- neurons communicate uh, with each other using an electrical chemical um, communication. And this glial cell myelin sheath um, basically acts like insulation, like on a fiber optic cable to um, increase the speed of conduction. That makes sense. You want the information to travel quickly. Uh, I mean, brain uh, neural transmissions are not that fast. So we want to make them as quick as possible if a message has to get from one side of the brain all the way to the other. Uh, so let's talk about that. We have two sides of the brain. And are they, I mean, they look the same. Are they are they identical? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at a picture of a brain or even, uh, you know, you see an image of a real brain, it, it looks like they are. But generally speaking, um, we have duplicates of most brain structures, right? So the brain structures that are on the left side are duplicated on the right side. And, and that helps for redundancy, right? So uh, there's a lot of redundancy built into the brain because if you can imagine if we only have one cell that helps us sleep, if that cell died, we'd be toast. Right. So it might help for us 
to kind of understand uh, that the brain cells that do most of the information processing, so these neurons, are organized into either clumps or sheets. So the clumps are like uh, cell bodies that are clumped together and they form what are called nuclei. So for example, we might have like 100 or so cells clumped together that uh, together they may be involved in something like reward, right? So like the nucleus accumbens, for example. That's a, an example of a clump. And other cells are, are, are grouped together into sheets or layers and their, their connectivity is more lateralized, right? So if you can imagine the outermost portion of the human brain is known as the cortex, which uh, means bark. And this cortical tissue is uh, indeed formed in, into sheets that are wrinkled because the brain has sort of um, folded in onto itself to preserve brain volume as the brain grew throughout development. So um, one example is something uh, you, our listeners may have heard of. It's the amygdala. Uh, it's an almond-shaped structure that's kind of nestled deep in the brain, and it's involved in the processing of emotions. Well, it turns out we actually have two amygdalae, one in the left and one in the right. Okay, so the whole brain looks like a walnut and the amygdala looks like a almond. Do all brain areas look like nuts? <laughs> no. <laughs> hard-hitting questions. Okay, so do both sides of the amygdala, do they process emotions in the same way? Well, that's the thing. Increasingly, scientists are recognizing that no, right? The left and right portions of the brain process information in similar but slightly different way. What's an example? So the best example, um, it's the clearest one. So I could talk about emotion, but it's a little bit um, less clear. But let's talk about language. So the regions of the brain that control our ability to both comprehend and speak are located in in, um, it's kind of spread out over what are called the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain. So the very front part and the temporal lobes, if you kind of put your hand up to the top of your ear and touch your temples, right in behind there is, is, your, is your temporal lobe. And kind of tucked in there um, is an area of the brain that's involved in the production of speech, and that's known as Broca's area. And it's named after the scientist who discovered it. So it's kind of a neat story. Sure, I am all ears. All ears and temples. <laughs> Uh, great. So Pierre Broca was a French doctor who specialized in anatomy, and this was around the mid-1800s. So our, our grasp of anatomy was really limited to gross exam... I'm now trying to speak French. <laughs> gross examination of the brain, right? We didn't have like imaging techniques like we do today. So in around the mid-1800s, uh, Pierre Broca visited a patient at a local hospital who had been experiencing uh, progressive loss of speech and also paralysis. So parts of his body were unable to, to move. And this patient had been nicknamed Tom, uh, and it's actually spelled T-A-N. And so if you're Anglophone, you might look at it and say it's tan. But remember, this person was French, so it's actually um, pronounced Tom, like time. Uh, and he was nicknamed Tom because he couldn't really say any other words. He, he had lost most of his ability to speak, except for he would kind of stutter, Tom, Tom. And this loss of the ability to speak um, or comprehend language is known as an aphasia. And so after Tan died, Broca had permission to perform an autopsy and discovered that this patient had a very large lesion, which is a loss of tissue, in an area in the left frontal lobe. So bear in mind, left frontal lobe. And based on this finding, uh, Broca proposed something known as the localization function uh, of, of, bra of, of uh, brain function. 
function. Um, and this theory kind of went against the phrenological uh, theories of brain function. Jim, I'm sure you've heard of phrenology, right? Yeah, it's like reading the head to find out people's like brain, uh, mind characteristics or something, right? Yeah, like e- these kinds of posters are kind of all over the place. Like you can see images of these old tiny um, uh, pictures of people. Like a grid on the, on the yeah, on the head, like a right? grid on the the head, and and this was kind of popular in the 1800s. People believed that your personality could be predicted by the shape of your skull. It's kind of like mm, palm reading, basically. So up until that uh, Broca's theories, this was sort of the dominant theory of how the brain and the mind worked. And uh, Broca's research and findings about Tom um, really went against that. He he said essentially, well, look, we've this this patient has lost a very specific region of the brain, and it seems to be controlling speech. Um, and so this sort of harkened a new avenue uh, to understanding brain function. And we should say that phrenology has been either almost or entirely debunked, right? Like there was never any good evidence for it. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you did say the left side of the brain. So was there something special about the left side with speech? Right. That's right. So as it turns out, much research following the pioneering work of Broca went on to demonstrate that while we do have similar brain tissue on both halves of the brain, it is the left Broca's area that tends to be involved in language. And we know this because, uh, like Tom, if there is damage to, or I should say the opposite of Tom, uh, if there's damage to the right side, it doesn't tend to produce the same loss of the ability to speak, uh, except uh, incidentally, if you are left-handed. Oh, tell me more. Mm-hmm. So as the resident lefty in this relationship, I'd like to speak <laughs> on behalf of all lefties around the world to say we are strange. Well, I kn- now, I know that about you, but I, I didn't want to generalize to all the lefties. <laughs> Very funny. Well, as it turns out, not only is language lateralized, it seems to differ depending on which hand is your dominant hand. So while the majority of folks across the globe are right-handed and the majority of right-handed individuals have language that is located in the left hemisphere, lefties are a bit, as I said, strange. So about if you took a uh, you know, population of 100 left-handed people, about 70 of them, so 70% of lefties have language localized in their left hemisphere. So it is still dominant. And that's even for... So it's the same as, maybe not the same percentage, but the majority of right and left-handed people have language localized in the left hemisphere, right? Right, right, exactly. And then of the remaining 30 uh, or 30%, uh, about that's kind of split down the middle. So about 15% have language localized in their right hemisphere, and the remaining 15% have bilateral representation of language, which is really cool. How do scientists know this? Oh, science is so cool. So this is assessed uh, using something called the sodium barbital test, uh, which is essentially like a, a, an anesthetic. And uh, you can imagine that knowing where somebody's language is located in the brain is really important if you're doing any sort of neurosurgical procedure where you may have to ablate or cut away like tumors, for example, or if there's seizured uh, activity in certain populations of brain cells, you kind of want to make sure that if you're removing any brain tissue, that you're not going to render somebody completely mute or aphasic, right? So, uh, it's really cool, actually, in, in, in these neurosurgical procedures, what they'll do uh, is basically freeze half the brain, right? So you administer this sodium amabarbital to one uh, hemisphere, and uh, what it does is it sort of temporarily shuts down the activity of the cells. And then at the same time in the OR, you'll have a neuropsychologist on hand who uh, will do a bunch of language tests to make sure speech production or comprehension is not lost. 
And uh, the way they can do this, and you might be wondering, wait, isn't somebody in the OR and they're going undergoing surgery? How is it that they're still conscious? Well, remember, uh, I don't know if maybe Jim and you'll know this, but um, uh, you don't actually, there's no pain uh, receptors on the brain, right? So you actually just locally freeze uh, the scalp and you can actually do brain um, like neurosurgical techniques with a patient being semi-conscious, which is pretty neat. So you don't have to do a, a general anesthesia. Anyway, that's an aside. Cool thing about the brain. So language comprehension appears to be localized. Like I said, language production is the uh, broker's area. Well, language comprehension is localized to a whole different area of the brain known as Wernicke's area. And if you recall, Broca's is kind of nestled in the frontal area, uh, while Wernicke's is in the temporal lobe, just kind of to the bottom and, and to the side of, of Broca's. And if you damage this region, it produces another type of aphasia, known as Wernicke's aphasia. And in this case, somebody, they they really struggle with understanding speech, right? So they may have some verbal output, um, but it's not, it's not perfect, right? You'll never see a case of somebody being able to perfectly speak with Wernicke's aphasia. They'll have this sort of odd speech uh, where they'll have their syntax that's intact, but it might be completely devoid of meaning. Uh, and they really struggle uh, with their ability to uh, understand what they read or hear. So essentially, uh, back to your question, scientists know um, how handedness kind of is, is uh, represented in the brain, like whether you have a dominant right or left uh, side of the brain based on uh, these kinds of studies. Okay, so it sounds like we know a lot about uh, lateralization with language, but let's switch gears. Are there other functions that are lateralized? Yes, but not to the great extent that language is. Um, there is, as I mentioned earlier, there's some suggestion that emotions are processed differently between the right and left hemispheres. Um, and it's also worth mentioning there are significant sex differences with lateralization as well. Oh, really? What do you mean? Well, uh, let me give you an example. So there's a region of the brain, uh, and again, everybody's got to have their neuroanatomy up to snuff today, right? So a region of the brain known as the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Oh, of course. Of course there is. Right? You can't have anything that simple, right? So it's a mouthful, but basically the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, uh, we can get hints as to where it is based on, on uh, the language, right? So it's the very front, which means prefrontal, the middle, medial, and bottom, ventral. So uh, for those of you that speak French, um, you will know that your stomach is called your vent, right? So ventral comes from towards the stomach. Now in the human brain, your ventral areas are sort of towards the bottom of the brain, which if you can kind of visualize, it doesn't really point towards your stomach. But it makes sense when you consider that humans are bipedal, meaning we walk on two feet, not four. But if you can imagine any organism like a pig or a sheep or a dog that is a quadruped, right? They're on all four, four legs. You can imagine if you can visualize that, then the bottom of their brain really is pointing towards their stomach, right? So there's a little short neuroanatomy lesson for you all. So prefrontal, uh, ventromedial prefrontal cortex is towards the front, bottom, and middle of the brain. And this ventromedial prefrontal cortex appears to be involved in decision-making and specifically around decisions 
things that have some emotional component. And uh, there's a really cool task. I don't know. Have you heard about the Iowa gambling task, Jim? Yeah, but I always forget what it is. Yeah, I know. Every time I teach it, I kind of have to remind myself. There's so many cool neuropsychological tests. So anyway, uh, this Iowa gambling task, it's um, it consists of, uh, you know, a participant will come into the lab and they, yeah, they'll do this on a computer, right? So they come in front of a computer and they're shown on the screen four different decks of cards, right? And the instructions are you pick... Um, from these decks of cards and the aim is to win as much money as possible and lose the least amount of money right so every card you pick you'll get this like notification you won five dollars or you lost ten dollars right and so participants don't really know anything beyond that they're just told pick from these decks of cards uh and 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 win the most amount of money what they don't know because scientists are clever is that uh these four decks of cards are split into two advantageous decks and two disadvantageous advantageous decks. So what that means is that the advantageous decks, if you pick a card from them, you don't win as much over time, but you also lose less often, right? Uh, the disadvantageous decks have higher wins, right? So, oh, 50 bucks, you, you get 50 bucks this time, but they also have even higher losses. So if you pick selectively from the disadvantageous decks over time, you're going to lose all your money versus advantageous, you're going to win more money. So at first, people kind of come in, they pick randomly, and then over time, they learn that optimal strategy of choosing from that advantageous deck over the course of about 100 card selections. What's neat is uh, um, patients with damage, that ventral medial prefrontal cortex, don't switch to the advantageous decks. They tend to pick from that disadvantageous deck. And here's the cool thing. Even if they can verbally state the reward contingencies of all four decks, right? So you have this damage to this part of your brain you're picking from that disadvantageous deck and you're saying you're saying explicitly that's not a great deck but they can't seem to make that decision to pick from uh, the optimal uh, strategy it's really cool that is totally cool but what does it have to do with brain lateralization right 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 right. I get so excited talking about these things I forget the point um <laughs> So it does seem to be and an, um, that the, the relationship between the laterality of individuals' uh, ventral medial prefrontal cortex lesion. So what that means is if you have it on the right side or the left side and their performance seems to also be um, moderated by sex, right? So for example, you get more severe problems uh, in impairments in men if they have damage to the right ventral medial prefrontal cortex. And with women, it's the opposite. So, yeah, cool, right? Why would that? Why would that be? Well, scientists think overall. I should mention that um, even if among folks that don't have lesions to this side of the brain, like normal, you know, so-called controls, uh, men perform better on average than women. Okay, and they and and I just want to pause and say, at yep, the, at the at the Iowa gambling task. Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, but there are other tasks that women perform better than men, right? So we all have our strengths, you know, overall. So we, at female identifying male identifying, right? We, we haven't yet caught up with um, gender, right? So there's whole studies that can be done uh, on the trans brains. But anyway, we're sticking to uh, biological sex for this conversation. But anyway, scientists think it may have to do with the way the brain is organized uh, during development, right? So we know that um, testosterone, uh, which is the, the, the main androgen, uh, where uh, there is higher levels of these the, the testosterone in men relative to women, uh, we think 
think it may influence the way cells develop and make connections with other brain regions, uh, much in the same way that estrogen, the estrogens, which are more dominant in females, also alter certain pathways and developments. So we discussed this a, a bit in our episode on gender in the brain. Uh, and uh, if our listeners want a refresher, they can certainly go back to that. But yeah, so overall, it just seems to be that our brains are organized differently. And, and as such, different brain regions uh, will also be lateralized differentially uh, depending on uh, your sex. Okay. All right. So the brain, we have two hemispheres and they're only connected by this, this like uh, corpus callosum. Mm -hmm. uh, so do they work mainly independently? I mean, how much can they work in harmony if they've only got like this wire between them? Well, that's a great question. Um, and it seems to be that they are, interestingly, relatively independent. And the unified functioning of the brain seems to depend on that highway of axons that connects the two sides, the so-called corpus callosum. Although we do have um, other uh, connections between the hemispheres. But the corpus callosum is the main one. Okay. How'd they find out, like, the importance of that brain structure? Mm -hmm. So the pioneering work, I love this stuff. It's it's so cool. I love teaching about it when I have the opportunity to do so. Uh, it was done in the 1960s by an American neuroscientist named Michael Gazaniga. And he was working under, uh, working with a, another famous neuro neuroscientist named Roger Sperry at Caltech. And Sperry was doing uh, interesting work looking at split brain animals, so non-human species like frogs and cats. And these animals had uh, surgically divided brains by virtue of they cut another area of the brain known as the optic chiasm. And the optic chiasm, it, like chiasm means cross in, in Greek, optic eye. It's uh, essentially fiber bundles, so those nerves again, that are exiting out of the back of the eye. So you have um, these retinal ganglion cell um, uh, axons that bundle out of the back of the eye and cross over um, to the other side of the brain. That's at the optic chiasm, as well as from the other eye, they'll traverse out of the back of the eye and then cross over to the other side. So that's called the optic chiasm. And so uh, Sperry had been doing these sort of experimental studies, cutting the optic chiasm and training these animals on certain sensory motor tasks uh, while keeping one eye closed. And what he found was that... Um, say they trained them on the left eye and then they unblinded the right eye after training and and blinded the left eye and the animal couldn't do the task right so it 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 basically showed that these um, hemispheres could kind of work independently but in order for us to sort of move forward and talking about Gazaniga's work I need to defer it a bit and describe how visual information is processed further in the brain so Jim what I want you to do look straight forward okay so look look at you know and everybody else can be doing this as they're listening along with us like so kind of look in the middle distance and, and imagine there's like a cross or a point uh, directly in the middle of your visual field can you imagine that right so you're mm -hmm. stra staring straight ahead now without turning your head or moving your eyes I want you to kind of attend to your left visual field right so you can still kind of like be aware of your left visual field and you can kind of do the same thing with your right visual field right right so this is this is uh, an important thing that's used a lot in cognitive psychology is that mm -hmm. your um, attention can shift 
lift without moving your eyes or your head. So you can just be staring into space as Kim's instructing us to do. And you can um, attend to information um, on either side of where your gaze is pointed. So yes, we're doing that now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the important thing to, to be aware of is that as you're staring straight ahead there, your left visual field is actually processed by both eyes. Like both eyes is actually seeing it, right? But the information, and it gets complex, so I'm going to keep it as simple as possible here, is actually processed preferentially by the right side of your brain. So let me mention that again. Your left visual field, while both eyes see it, that information is processed in the right side of your brain. And it's crossing over there in part via the optic chiasm, right? Which is also um, part of the corpus callosum. It's not part of, but you can imagine that it is, it is uh, analogous to that. And by the same, you know, it, it's the opposite is the case for the right visual field. So your right visual field is processed, crosses over and processed by the left hemisphere. And is pro- and, and, and that's the preference for that. So remember, Jim, what happens on the left side of your brain? We the Language. We process language there. That's right. So that's why it's important to talk about vision and language in the same breath here. So we can really understand how these the, the, the two hemispheres are working kind of independently from one another. So what we have is a right visual field advantage of language-related information. Why is that? Because images on our right visual field hit the left side first. Now back to Sperry and Gazanica. So Sperry was doing all this work on non-human animals, exploring the impact of these split-brain animals. And what Sperry was finding was incredible, right? If an animal had this corpus callosum that was severed, it appeared as though one hemisphere of the brain was unable to demonstrate any learning of a task if the animal had only learned it through the opposite eye and therefore opposite hemisphere. Okay, so so let me let me just uh, summarize here. So if mm-hmm. a person is looking straight ahead and there's a word on the right side of their visual field, they're going to be they're going to have a slight advantage in understanding and or speed in, in understanding the word because the left brain is going to process it. That's right. That's right. And if the and if you put the word on the left side of the visual field, mm-hmm. you'll be slightly worse mm-hmm. if you're like most people and you have your left <laughs> left hemisphere yeah. uh, language dominant. Correct. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so what so uh, this was all with frogs and cats and stuff. Yeah, what about yeah. uh, humans? Right. So, well, it turns out that, and this is yet another little slight tiny diversion, uh, is that one of the ways to treat intractable epilepsy, and we do have a whole episode on of minding the brain on epilepsy as well, and 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 um, novel treatments for childhood epilepsy. But briefly, epilepsy is kind of when the cells in your brain are firing in the absence of external or internal stimuli. So they fire in these um, aberrant uh, patterns, which can lead to seizure activity. Activity, right? So not always, but depending on the form of epilepsy, you can you can get these grand mal seizures. And there's some folks who have epilepsy that's so severe it's not even uh, they're seizing like hundreds of times a day, and it's not treatable using uh, specific forms of medicine that that can be used. So one way to treat this is in fact to sever or cut the corpus callosum, literally cleave off one half of the other, and this seems to reduce seizure activity. And back to Gazaniga, uh, whose job it was, he he they're sort of like capitalizing on on patients that had this corpus callosectomy, as it's called. And uh, Sperry was interested to know, okay, well, we see this these interesting phenomena with uh, animals that have had this split brain preparation. Why don't we see what happens with humans, right? So Gazaniga came in and started studying a human patient known as WJ. Now, just a side bar in human studies uh, to make sure that patients remain anonymous, they're 
often known as their initials. So I would be known as KH, you would be known as JD. So patient WJ received the surgery for epilepsy. And uh, as legend would have it, uh, he was asked to come into the lab. Gazaniga was running this, this study on his own. And he had WJ come into the lab, sit in front of a computer screen and do kind of the thing I asked you and our listeners to do earlier. He was instructed to fixate on a dot in the center of the screen. And then Gazaniga flashed uh, an image to the right of the dot for about a very, very short amount of time, 100 milliseconds. Now, Jim, do you remember, where is that image going? Okay, so if it's on the right side of the visual field, mm-hmm. it's going to the left side of the brain. Correct, right? So when Gazaniga asked WJ to describe what he'd seen, what do you think happened? Okay, so there's a dot on the right, which means it goes to the left, mm-hmm. which, and or that's where an the image. language yep. where mm-hmm. the language is mm-hmm. um, for probably WJ, mm-hmm. as it is for most people. And so he would probably be able to say what he saw. Yep, he was. Now, here's the fascinating part. When Gazaniga flashed an image, different image, now to the left side of the dot, the image was then processed on the right side of the brain. But because of that corpus cholecectomy, that information was not able to go to the left side, right? So when Gazaniga asked WJ what he saw, he said nothing. And apparently Gazaniga was blown away, right? So I have a transcript of his own writing of what what he describes he was feeling at the time. So here's Gazaniga's words. My heart races. I begin to sweat. Have I just seen two brains? That is to say, two minds working separately in one head. One could speak. One couldn't. What was happening? That's so, that is so wild. Didn't he win a Nobel Prize for this? He did. In, about 20 years later in 1981. And he also went on to show something quite interesting. So while WJ wasn't able to say the images that were projected to the left side of his visual field, because they were going to the right side, he had no language, he was, WJ was able to draw a picture of what he said or point to it using his left hand. So even though split brain patients cannot name objects presented to that side of the visual field, they are able to make correct nonverbal responses. That's so neat. So you you have to you have to ask for a response in the right way. So the right brain can draw with the left hand, but it can't talk. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's so amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this do, this calls into question whether we have two distinct brains in our heads. It's a colossal finding. Mm, what a pun! That's a good one. Colossal. I get corpus callosum. <laughs> uh, anyway, yes. <laughs> there there's another tale, and 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 uh, you know I I remember reading this as an undergraduate, and I cannot seem to find the reference for it. But if it's true. It, it's pretty wild. But there's another tale of a split brain patient who, as you know, legend would have it, reached out one morning in their closet with their right hand to select a brown shirt to wear. And the left hand slapped it away and grabbed a, a blue shirt. <laughs> I, I've heard that, too. It's like have the two you? sides yeah. of the brain. Yeah. The two sides of the brains have different ideas about what to wear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the right, um, you know, the, the right hand, whatever, can't even say anything about it. All it can do is like, move yeah. his left hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just say, no, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, makes you wonder, like, who's controlling who, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's switch gears a bit and get back to what we started off with, one of the gems of popular psychology, which we will support or debunk as is duly appropriate. Is it true <laughs> that we have right or left-brained people? Like, a, can a person be left-brained? Does that make any sense? Yeah, I know. This idea has been rattling around psychology and neuroscience textbooks for a while, and I, I certainly remember learning about it, and I've taught a, a bit of it, actually. And the idea is that if you're right-handed, uh, you're likely 
left brain dominant. And because the left brain, we know language is lateralized to that side. If you're right-handed, you're more likely to have superior language or verbal skills. And the opposite is the case for lefties. So if you're, you're more likely to be right brain dominant, and actually I haven't mentioned this yet, but the right side of the brain appears to be um, responsible for more processing of spatial information. So lefties apparently are better at uh, spatial skills. You know what's funny? Like my pop understanding of right brain, left brain people had nothing to do with handedness. Oh. I never actually even heard that association. I just thought it was just like a a trait people had, like they were just left brained. Oh, interesting. Um, Well, but I have heard hmm. that left brain, like, um, I mean, left-handed, are, are artists more likely to be left-handed? Like, are left-handed people more creative? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of anecdotes about this. And let's call it anecdata. So, you know, some of the greats of artists, right? Michelangelo, Paul Klee, M.C. Escher, to name a few, are were purportedly left-handed. Uh, but studies trying to demonstrate this empirically have been equivocal. Uh, you know, some, you know, they bring lefties and righties into the lab and get them to do these pen and paper tests of creativity. Um, and, you know, some say yes and some say no. Uh, but more recent studies seem to suggest it's not necessarily if you're left-handed, it's the degree to which you have dominance for a particular hand that seems to be predictive of overall creativity. So what that means, like they have also um, pen and paper tests of handedness, right? So, you know, which hand do you use to brush your teeth, which hand do you use to play sports and so on and so forth. And it's like, if I'm really left-handed or really right-handed, that seems to be more predictive of creativity. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, what about neuroscience evidence? That's also murky. So uh, most of the research now, we have a lot of imaging technology so we can explore this to see if there is lateralized dominance in uh, in humans. Um, And one one kind of test that people are using or an approach, I should say, is something called resting state functional connectivity that's done in an MRI. And essentially, it's an analysis of which areas of the brain are connected when in periods of rest. Unlike most uh, imaging studies, you kind of have an individual doing a specific task, right? Like reading, thinking, playing a game or whatever, and you're looking at what what parts of the brain are dominant during this task, where resting state uh, functional connectivity is kind of which, when you're not doing anything, um, what parts of the brain seem to be the most connected. And one of these conditions is the so-called default mode network. And Jim, this is your jam. So why don't you go explain what that is? <laughs> sure. Default mode network is a it's a network of brain areas. So it's not just one brain area, but it's a, a network. And it seems to be active more when a person is not focused on their immediate surroundings, their outside world. The brain is wakeful, but it's sort of relaxed and resting. Uh, and it tends to be uh, day, time for daydreaming and mind wandering. Mm. So when you don't, you know, you don't have to attend to what's going on around you. Maybe you're taking a walk or you're doing something that's easy, like doing the dishes and your mind starts going to other things. That's probably the default mode network kicking in. Uh, during this time, people tend to focus on their longer term goals. They might plan something. They might fantasize. And that's the default mode network. And interestingly, it was 
only discovered for pretty recently, like in the last decade or so. Mm, there was one paper where they put both right and left-handed individuals in a brain scanner, and they don't—they didn't really find lateralized differences in this default mode network, right? So it wasn't like mm. certain areas are that default mode network was the activity was higher in one side of the brain versus the other, right? So it suggests the left brain, brain, right brain thing doesn't really pan out, at least using this technique. And on that note, the left side of my brain is sleepy from talking so much. So I think it's a good time to say goodbye. And I want to thank my broker's area for allowing me to deliver this amazing podcast. And I will thank my Wernicke's area for understanding it. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. Special thanks to Jonah Nemiroff for assisting with the curation of content for this episode. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.